how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. As a kid in England, Joby Harold was obsessed with movies like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, Star Wars, and Jaws. These movies inspired him to find his way into Hollywood and to quote, go for it as a screenwriter. Today he's best known for King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, Army of the Dead, and he's got credits on upcoming movies like The Flash and Transformers Rise of the Beast. Today we're talking about the new series Obi-Wan Kenobi for Star Wars and Disney+. In this interview, we talk about lanes of genre, samurai and western influences in Star Wars, the, quote, deadening of Hollywood's most iconic characters, how to write for both studios and filmmakers, and how to build off what you've inherited from these tentpole franchises. I grew up in England, um, a very cliched story of coming from a single-parent family and uh, uh, my mom working three jobs and me using film and television as sort of a surrogate parent um, and just fell in love with movies, specifically um, with the advent of VHS, being able to watch movies over and over and over again mm -hmm. and having kind of go-to Hollywood movies that really just sort of took hold of my brain, um, which were sort of Magnificent Seven and Great Escape kinds of movies. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, you know, obviously the Star Wars and the Jaws and everything that came out of that late 70s period so that really was you know as a little kid in england loving that and started making little movies as as everybody seems to do with these backstories um and then just was like that's just you know my life i'm never going to go do that for a career and then decided you know fuck it i'm just going to go for it and, and i applied to ucla i got into ucla i went to film school at ucla and I all with the intent of being a director. That's all I wanted to do and all I cared about was directing. Um, and took screenwriting classes at UCLA with a professor named Lou Hunter, uh, who wrote a terrific book and is uh, was a great, was a really great professor because he really empowered you as a writer. 
even though I look back and read some of the stuff I was writing, I was like, dear God. But the man just made you feel good as a writer. And at the bottom of everything, wrote right on, W-R-I-T-E, right on, left a message on my parents' answer machine in England after I'd submitted a script after the school year was over saying the loveliest things about me, about my writing. And my parents heard it and they were like, ooh, you should take this, <laughs> you should take this seriously. And I was like, no, 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 I'm a director, I'm a director, I'm a director, I'm interested. Um, all my family writes. But I was like, no, it's not going to be me. I'm going to be a director. And then um, I moved to, I started writing. Um, and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to write in order to direct. So I'm going to write a script that's so good. And then I'll say, if you want it, I have to direct it. And that's, so it was just a part of the directing again. Um, and was able to do that. But through the process of that, to make a living in New York, I wrote a script for Fine Line. I got in the WGA. I started writing scripts for independent movies in town. I just suddenly got, I was writing more than I was directing. And then I directed this movie and that was, wasn't the easiest experience or the experience I wanted it to be. And I came out of that suddenly getting traction as a writer because of the script that I'd written was doing the rounds in, in, um, in Los Angeles. Um, and I started getting studio work. I got Army of the Dead right off the back of that. And, um, and that script did very well for me in the way it was received. And then suddenly I started becoming a studio writer and it just sort of happened. And then through sort of whimsy or pragmatism, whatever it was, I just realized I was a writer <laughs> and it was just that now I'm a screenwriter. And then that led to Edge of Tomorrow. And then that led to, it just kind of just the way it sort of snowballs, producing was something that was, um, sort of a natural part of it in the same way directing writing producing all those elements of it hopefully i'm an okay producer because i understand what it is to be a director i understand what it is to be a writer i kind of get the different pieces of the puzzle and the division of labor um and i so i have a production company with my wife we've done we do a bunch of sort of film and television and it just happened organically out of that so i went in to be a director accidentally became a writer became a producer off the side of writing because writing and producing you know there's a if you want to protect your stuff, you end up having to be involved in it. Um, and it just sort of happened organically. And then I think I joined the Guild in 2001. And now this is 20, whatever, 21 years later. Do you see, so the projects you're known for, King Arthur, King Arthur Army of the Dead, Obi-Wan Kenobi, I think Transformers will be coming out. Do you see yourself as writing like a mixture of genres? Like I once heard someone say all the Marvel films are this plus that, like Venom is Marvel plus horror. It seems like your movies have maybe two genre elements. Do you kind of see that when you're writing? Uh, it's a really interesting question because there's a difference between all the stuff I've written and then, there's, and then the things that have gotten made. Right. And then eventually you have to look at the things like the posters in our office and be like, wait a minute, <laughs> hold on a second. <laughs> like I've, I've written all these things and, you know, some of them done really well. And then, and then, but I look at these, these things, these posters on the wall and especially sometimes you don't get credit on something. So people don't know that whatever, and you get, that can be frustrating, but you know, and you know which movies represent authorship of yours the most, but I'll look to your point and I'll see, it's sort of undeniable. I'll see Obi-Wan and I'll see Edge of Tomorrow and I'll see Transformers and John, some John Wick stuff and The Flash, which I got credit on. And like, 
you'll look and I'll be like, well, wait a minute. I'm writing in a, on a lane right here. It's pretty clear. But I, I, I can't deny what's happening. But then when I, one of our first forays into producing was I wrote a three-page outline because a friend of ours had the shopping rights to Mommy and Me, which is a parenting group. I don't know if you know what Mommy and Me is or if you have kids. Do you know what Mommy and Me is? I kind of know. We actually just had a baby, so I've got a newborn, so I'm learning all these things. Yeah. All right. Congratulations. <laughs> so uh, Mommy and Me is like a group where you sit around and you, as a parent, you bounce a baby and then you talk about like breathing. I don't know what the hell it is. We did it like four times. Anyway, it was an opportunity. Someone had Mommy and Me as the rights and were like, okay, what would that be? I wrote a three-page thing about this is what a mommy and me movie would be an intergenerational parenting movie mm-hmm. and then we attached Meryl Streep to that Tina Fey to that Stanley Tucci was directing that wow. and it was all and it sort of snowballed and there was a bidding war around it and that was like what an intergenerational female driven parenting comedy like that's not Edge of Tomorrow Flash John Wick like it's not those things so um, it's funny how you you end up ending up in a lane um, and I am in that lane right now. And and as much as I enjoy doing other stuff, you know, if I look back when I said at the beginning, the kind of movies I was watching when I was a kid, the reason I'm here, it was Magnificent Seven and Star Wars and Jaws and a certain, a certain lane of movies. And I'm probably yeah. still in that lane. Um, and I love, I don't, and I, and, you know, I love sitting on the sofa with my kids and watching it. Do you see more, I know we can't go into too many details about Obi-Wan Kenobi, but if we're to reference like the Mandalorian, yeah, all Star Wars has Western samurai influences, but yeah. Boba Fett and Mandalorian are very obviously so. Did you kind of, did you get to look back at some of those movies to enter this world? I know Obi-Wan is more in the actual film as more attached as opposed to the Mandalorian maybe, but how did you kind of think about what were some of the conversations had without telling too much about adding those influences? Did you look to Jean Favreau and what he was doing to make it a new, like, how do you kind of see where this fits in with everything else? Yeah, I totally agree with everything you said. The tradition of Western or de facto samurai storytelling in Star Wars, very clear. They've done a great job with that. They and both of it. So it, it, you know, they, they had their lane, which I don't think we wanted to, we wanted to have our own. Um, but you're still cognizant of the fact that you're in a tradition that you have to honor. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Tatooine is a part of the storytelling, this, you know, the mythology around which this was built back in the day and still is consistent with the mythology of our show. So I look, I did look at certain, um, you know, Deb looked at some samurai stuff. I looked at two Westerns specifically. Um, which just really resonated for me with the character, one of which was Shane, um, and the other was was Unforgiven, um, and and so sort of older and newer, and the storytelling, those paradigms are compelling because they're character stories, um, and they're sort of you know Obi Wan's at a time in his life where he's older, and that is the fight behind him, you know. It, like, there's interesting questions in there that resonated for me on a quite a mythic level with the Western and it's undeniable to your point. Um, so those are a couple of the, the sort of touchstones I looked at within that genre. Um, but it's an interesting genre, the Western, you know, obviously a uniquely American cinematic storytelling that echoes the traditions of other, you know, parts of the world. It's, it's compelling to then put that into a science fiction paradigm. 
um, which is why it's worked and why it's, you know, it works so well with what Favreau did. Have you seen, um, have you noticed some, some bigger changes to the genre or maybe to movies that were previously geared towards men? There's, there's a thing called the daddening of video games where it seems like there's a dad-like character. And, and this is, I mean, it's not brand new, but it's more common. So like, like the description just says, Obi-Wan watches over young Luke. Obviously that's Mando and, and baby Yoda. There's some of that there. Do you see it as like this, this empathy factor, or have you noticed that in some of the work you've done, this, this type of thing? I need to understand more about this concept. <laughs> the daddening meaning the, the archetype of the father is being introduced narratively more into. And it's like, it's always music. unexpected. Look at like Logan just came out the yeah. last James Bond. He has a daughter, yeah. you know, like, it's just like this. I think it's just this automatic empathy and a non-empathetic character. Do you kind of see? It's really interesting. And I wonder if there's been a, you know, those hero's journey stories where, we're, where we were once the farm boy and now we're the father and that right. generation of storytellers that's gotten a generation older. So now they're still telling stories, but we're doing it from that other perspective. I wonder right. if that'll change. Yeah. As a new generation of storytellers comes through and takes back the reins and says, stop daddening up everything with your dad bods. Like, let's, it's our go. We're, we're back. Um, I don't know. It's a really, really, really good question. And I love it because, you know, when, I'm, when I was younger, I wrote younger protagonists. Mm-hmm. That's a fact, right? right? I couldn't relate to being a dad back then. And I had, it's not very sexy to have a dad running around when I'm 22. Why am I writing a dad? I don't want to, he's got an appendage. I don't want to deal with your appendage. Right. Now that the appendage, to your point is, part of the contract with the audience like you do care don't you because of the appendage mm-hmm. and like i don't know that i want to see my han solos and my indiana joneses with the appendage like that's right. the whole point right they're they're buccaneering and and it, it, i don't want that encumbered by you know the wife and kids um yeah. but now i'm a dad with a wife and three kids so i do relate to that journey for sure. I don't look so, I guess the, sh- the long answer is I don't look at it as a, as a, a d- device, right. a narrative device to create empathy. To me, I'm riding in that direction because that's my reality that I emotionally relate to. Right. And I guess, you know, you could break down the demographics of an audience and figure out where their relatability is most resonant vis-a-vis their life, parentage versus teenagehood, you know, versus, you know, the freedom of your twenties, you're a new father where you, you, you'll probably relate less to the rock and roll of youth right. now, but then in 20 years, you'll probably yearn for it more. So you'll enjoy watching it more. You right. know, like there's, I think at the end of the day, you just kind of like, it's whatever thing resonates most to you that Tuesday. And right. this Tuesday, I happen to love Obi-Wan because I'm getting older, he's getting older. Yeah, we've all got pasts, we've all got futures, we're all trying to reconcile the things in the back of our heads that rattle around that we can't get rid of, mm-hmm. get past our own demons so that we can, you know, we've got one go around here, try to do the best version of it. And the only way to get to that kind of the promised land of that future is to reconcile some of the, some of the things in the way. And hopefully everybody can relate to that story because everyone's, you know, got a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not be Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> it might be, you know, a mother-in-law or a boss that drives yeah. you insane, but we're all, we're all on our journey. So in that sense, I, I don't, the daddening <laughs> of it all, I, I plead the fifth man because Obi-Wan's already this age and doing right. his thing. So I'm just here to help tell that story. 
I happen to be a dad. It's a coincidence. Right. <laughs> do you think the, is the hero's journey still as equally important? Like do audience expect certain things? And then do you have more room to play with that in like a six episode series as you do a movie? Like, how do you think about some of those things? Um, I love that question too. I'm loving all your questions. Um, uh, the hero's journey when I first started writing 20 years ago, whatever, was not a cheaper trick, but more resonant for an audience. Mm -hmm. It was, I loved it because it was a paradigm you could snap a, a story to that would resonate and you could say, campfire tradition, Joseph Campbell, audiences love it, they always read. Right. I think it got really, a lot of people went to the well on that and the audiences are so sophisticated now from a storytelling point of view and so many paradigms have been pushed and storytelling's been pushed in TV and in our, in our features that we're so ahead of the beats and rhythms of the hero's journey that if you're not finding ways to be progressive in and around it, it's kind of boring. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that which, I think we've sort of fucked it up. <laughs> it, was, it was around for hundreds of years and working brilliantly. Right. And then in, in Hollywood, we just sort of saturated the marketplace with the same story. Um, and it's a bit of a shame because like when you're that far ahead of it, it stops being, it stopped, I would say, being comfort food. And instead, it started to become um, just predictable and even, dare I say, a little bit cheesy, which is a real shame because what, you know, we were talking about Westerns and samurai movies and stuff, and what obviously what George Lucas did was so important and wonderful and unifying for an audience and a globe because we could all get behind a common ground of, you know, that which represented sort of everybody. It was brilliant. It's really, really good. Now that's less interesting if, you know, I get, if there's a, a book that comes across my desk or whatever, and I think to myself, well, this would fit a hero's journey pretty well. Mm -hmm. So, you know what I mean? Like, that right. doesn't really mean anything anymore. As an audience, I don't want to sit and watch it. Um, so what becomes interesting with TV when you have more room for character, more room to breathe, is what are the things about the hero's journey that do resonate, that are mythic and universal, and how can you apply that to different paradigms that give you more room for reversals and to be subversive within the context of an arc? Still get to the same place, but get there in a less expected way, but then also hit the traditions of, you know, you want to have a dark night of the soul. There's a rhythm of a three-act structure and a hero's journey emotionally are synced to the experience of watching a movie for a couple of hours. Mm. You, you, you've got the rush at the beginning. The fun and games is really where you're feeling it your popcorn, you stop eating the popcorn around halfway through because you're starting to feel a bit like, oh, I didn't need it anyway. And the midpoint's sort of taken hold in an elegant way. And then you sort of, you, you, you wonder a little bit in 2B, right? You kind of yeah. just kind of, and then the Dark Knight, so the Dark Knight of the Soul is happening when it should do in your experience. And then you're aware of the fact the movie's going to end in about 25 minutes. So you're like, well, up for it again. And you're like, yeah, I love the reason we came this. And if it ends well, you're like, God, that was worth the money. And then you drive home and talk about it. And then it fits the emotional, the hero's journey and that three act structure all fit beautifully together. Once you start to expand the length of that in, you know, like with the six part limited, like we have the rhythms of it change. Plus you're eating that in six chunks. So each of those chunks is being absorbed in a different way and has its own act structure. And so you can't really apply the hero's journey to that, but you can look at it as a whole and still say emotionally Dark Knight of the Soul would be there. You know what I mean? Like, so you can, so it's like a hybrid version of telling those stories still, but it resonates for me as a question because 
um, I'm very enamored with it as a storyteller. And, and I'm very aware of the fact that I don't, it's, it's, it's an easy thing to be lazy and just fall into the rhythms of that, which has existed so long and say, oh, it's elegant storytelling. But at the end, is it, or is the audience just like, please tell me a story in a new way? That's why subjectivity was so important. That's why it was so great, like 15 years ago, when we started having real, you know, subjective storytelling that wasn't cutting away from the protagonist. And you really felt more like this is the experience or experiential cinema of being in a massive temple, but I'm sticking with this person. When you started to watch, the form was pushed. When Cloverfield was a really lovely moment, right? I remember I Am Legend in Cloverfield, living in New York and seeing both those movies. I think they came out in the same summer. And being like, all right, like, I'm in it. Like I'm, I'm, it was post 9-11, all those echoes were making sense. So I emotionally was feeling it. Storytelling wise, I was feeling very subjectively like I was feeling it because I was stuck with these characters, but the scale of the movie was the same. Hmm. And that, that, and that, so the, the sort of taking that all the way to gravity or, or what have you, the perspective shift, like what would Star Wars be now through that lens would be, you'd probably wake up with Luke on the farm Right. And he, there's that great scene. I, think, I don't know if it was shot or I can't remember. It was just scripted. But where Luke would see the, I think it was shot with this, you know, the battle and the stars above mm -hmm. Tatooine and then would see a, you know, like all that stuff. The idea yeah. you just stick with him and it would come into his world. And that stuff's the stuff that's really, really interesting to me. And what it'll be in two or three years time, five years time. What's the new way of, because that subjectivity is already sort of worn out. It's welcome. Do we go back to being mythic? Do we tell stories? in a different way. There's that sort of, I have a World War II movie that we've been developing for ages with Ridley Scott. And part of that dance is always the tradition of the World War II movie it used to be cut to the war room, cut to the, you know, the that map with the, yeah. <laughs> the little sort of, you know, like where you feel like you're in Vegas and they're pushing troops around. Is that the best version of telling those stories? Or is it waking up on the farm as Luke flying a Spitfire? You know, it's, yeah. a, it's the eternal question that's interesting as a writer and as a producer of things still feeling as dynamic as they can be, but also being cognizant of, of, of what makes storytelling interesting, which is hopefully when it evolves. Do you see, and again, I'm kind of limiting you to the, the IMDb page here, but do you see a lot of these are sort of ensemble pieces? Do you see like everyone kind of getting their own hero journey or at least the top five? Do you kind of see it like that and how they balance with each other is what creates the plot? For just for... Just kind of in general, like every few months. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I honestly usually think of it as a single protagonist-led experience. I mean, obviously that's different in TV. Like some of the mm -hmm. shows we've been lucky enough to be a part of, you have there's a different version of that. That obviously yeah. is more ensemble, um, but as it should be, because you know, to me, the apex of TV is, you know, it's like Mad Men, and that's the, the genius of that is you. Oh, there's every single one of those characters I love and adore, and I want to be with each of them in their own show. Mm -hmm. With movies, a lot to do with what we were just talking about, I always think of it very much architecturally and the architecture paradigm of whatever story you're telling is the intersection of character and structure and those two things being the same thing. So mm -hmm. the structure being built around the character and the arc, and that is a single arc to me, usually of that protagonist. And then the pieces of the puzzle around them vis-a-vis -vis the other characters and relationships to that character should be usually to me of a theme mm -hmm. and reinforcing or exploring that theme in some way. And each of them should have their own identity, which is telling their own story and their own mini arc, but it would all be contributing to part of the conversation of the movie and the theme of the movie 
so that at the end of the day, the movie has a point of view that it's representing built around the character and the structure linked with all those other characters around that character, informing that character's journey in some way, but also exploring that theme in some way, giving you kind of a 360 on uh, a reason for the movie to be. So it's a complete thought at the end. And scripts that do that really well, like I think Attica does that really, really well. For whatever reason, that movie just popped into my mind. Mm -hmm. um, Back to the Future does that really, really well. Um, the the those movies that just feel like a complete thought Terminator the first Terminator doesn't really well a complete thought about one journey where the theme is strong um, those are the, those are the things that I think we work with a with a showrunner who said they're always trying to find the perfect hour of TV and I feel like on the feature side I'm always trying to sort of articulate that perfect two hour movie that is the complete thought you know that's just elegant on that level the way some movies few movies have achieved it but when they do it's just it ends and you just like fuck i just want to sit in this feeling it's just that's amazing thank you for the stars to have, knowing how hard it is now for the stars to have aligned where every department is in sync and the story is just told in the right way and a part of it is just time luck it's just magic like it shouldn't well casablanca shouldn't be as good as it is right not with all those minds it shouldn't work as well as it does but it's mm -hmm. perfect um and that kind of each time you're rolling the dice with that um, alchemy and hoping, hoping it works. Sometimes it doesn't at all. And sometimes it's just the wrong voices trying to get married. Um, uh, and then when it does, you feel very fortunate to be a part of it. So you've done a lot of bigger studio stuff that, that we're looking at here. Would you say that plot is maybe subject to studio plus audience and theme is more about the personality of the writer. How do you kind of view those two different things? Um, <clears throat> I look at it a little, the division a little differently. I look at it between studio and filmmaker. Mm -hmm. um, and that typically in my experience tends to be what it is. There's what the studio wants the movie to be. Um, I say this on the future side, um, what their ambitions for the movie are and what satisfies their expectations but also minimizes their fear um if that makes sense yeah uh, whereas on the filmmaker side there's much more about sort of supporting ambition and it's 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 less to do with minimizing for more to do with sort of maximizing the opportunity and and sort of the liberation of imagination and all that stuff which is those two things are slightly antithetical so i think hopefully a good studio writer understands how to make both sides feel like they're being protected which is a hard thing to do because sometimes they're not in sync. Sometimes they are, and they're just not in sync with you. <laughs> right. Uh, and then sometimes you're more in sync with one or the other where you really understand what the studio wants and you work with them a bunch and you know how to sort of give them a movie and green light a movie. I'm lucky enough to get a bunch of movies greenlit. And that process is very much one of understanding the studio and what they need. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the difference between getting a movie greenlit at a studio and giving them what they need to have a big tempo movie and giving a filmmaker what they want behind the ambition of the movie, behind knowing there'll be that much PNA and that many Happy Meals, how do they get to satisfy their creative interests, which usually aren't Happy Meals. <laughs> they are, they're wanting to tell a story. Um, and I'd say I've evolved in the last sort of 20 years between which side of that puzzle I find most interesting and where I'm most useful. But ideally, the really good studio writers are the ones that can do both. And it's not easy because they're not, like I said, they're not always in mind. Do you see it sort of so, to give another example, I talked to some of the Marvel writers who are writing the shows for Disney and 
you know, they have a lot of freedom, but you can't do anything. You can't just throw Spider-Man in there, for example. Yeah. Do you see it as kind of like, okay, these are, when you sit down with Disney or Star Wars, is it like, here's the game, do they kind of say, here's the game pieces you have to play with and you kind of come up with it or how much is already laid out when you come in and start writing? Um, it depends on the brand, on the IP. Mm-hmm. So like with DC, it was when I was doing Flash, it was like they didn't, they had an old thing and I was like, I think you should, I just went and read a bunch of comics and I was like, this is the story I think you should tell. I think mm-hmm. this is, you've been telling the wrong story. How about this? How about this comic book? This is great. This is this is bigger. This is this feels more mythic. Yeah. And then it's, I get the freedom to do that story once everyone agrees on that point of view. Um, Transformers, it's like they didn't know what they had. They didn't know what to do, really. And they had sort of... It, it, they were exploring versions, but they didn't really have any confidence in what they were going to do. So I was able to just do the same thing and say, look, here's the... Usually for me star wars transformers dc wick whatever it is it's what's the soul of what why it's special and people love it what makes it unique why does it capture people's imaginations what's that thing mm-hmm. and once you understand that thing which is often speak to your earlier point a theme thing it's a, you know like it's it, once you've gotten to that well, what's the character journey around that theme that's resonant and how does that become structure and how does that become world building Right. You know, so so each time it's different. And sometimes you have freedom and room and you feel like you can play anywhere. And Transformers, I could go any decade I wanted and pick characters that I wanted. And so I was able to say, here, this is what I think it should be. Obi-Wan Kenobi is a, a, a legacy character with legacy yeah. characters surrounding him lives on a planet that we know. We know where he's going. We know where he's been. There are rules all around it. But there, Lucasfilm's brilliant at supporting the imagination and saying, what would you do uh, to the writer? And great writers before me were given that opportunity too. So it's about building off of what you've inherited, saying, here's where I think we could go, having like minds with the people around you and a shared ambition, and then pushing the boundaries of the sandbox and saying, can we go here? Can we go here? And for the most part, you could. Sometimes you get a call saying, you can't. (laughs) You can't go over there. Can't go to that planet. Can't use that character. Um, and you'd say why in an early incarnation I had rancors in my in my uh, outline I think I had like um, two rancors like fighting each other and like a gladiator situation some 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 rancor thing because I love rancors because who doesn't they're just the absolute fucking best they're wonderful they're amazing I just want to live in that rancor world and I, I was told no you can't do that and I was like why and they're like don't worry about it <laughs> right. but why why <laughs> oh, don't worry about it so you know, occasionally those things happened. Um, I think at the time it was, you know, under the guise of production, but it was, you, I then end up looking at stuff that comes down the pike. I'm like, oh, right, right, right. okay, right. fair enough, fair enough. Most of the things that I wanted to explore like that, we were able to get through. Um, so there's concurrent storytelling happening, obviously on a practical level, and everyone has to make sure each person has their own lane. But beyond that, um, it's each time different in regards to the freedom that you have, but there was more freedom in Star Wars than you'd imagine. Just you had to stick to canon, stay on the lane, not step on any mines, right? You know, and talk to Pablo and make sure that everything's clear and good, and then and then you're off to the races. I think we're about out of time. We'll just do one more. Um, 
like to kind of wrap up, if you could go back and give yourself advice as a writer before your career started or any advice you'd like to pass on to, to novice want to break in uh, writers today, what might you tell them? I would probably, it'd probably be two things. One would be what Lou Hunter said. I believe it was Lou said it, which is you're not good to your, I said this before, but you're not good to your seventh script. And I remember being like, mm, that's not going to apply to me. I'll be great by like my third. Um, and um, he was entirely right. And you like the pretense of writing is you have to kind of get all that stuff out, all the stories you think you should be telling so that eventually it's just, all right, we've got a phone, we've got some glasses, right? We've got this actor, we've got this situation. What's the best version of that story? And then it's just, you're just breathing, you're just writing. You're just writing the best version of the scene best version of the characters and you're doing it with such consistency that it's just roughage for your system and then eventually you just become better through practice because you put in all the hours that's the so the first thing is don't get caught up in your first script and there's definitely writers that we've worked with that get caught up in that first idea just keep trying to make it better mm -hmm. so let your first idea be your first idea let your second idea be your second idea just keep going until you get to a point where you refine it and there's so much reverence at the beginning for your own words that they're important because you put them out Right. It's like they're great, but eventually it's just a script on a shelf. So keep going until something really becomes good because it's organic. And you, at the beginning, you're so, I remember creating a screenwriting magazine cut out on my desk with a, something about a horror movie and how horror movies were structured or something. I was like, I need this. And then I've got to structure around this because this is how it's done. And you hold on so tight as opposed to just kind of the jazz of it, of just mm -hmm. learning to just be organic. I think the same applies to anything, the same applies to directing too. Um, so that would be the first thing, and I think a really important thing. Um, and then the other thing would be, it's just, it, it's fun, you know? It's supposed to be fun. So it's just, it's to me, I'm watching the movie in my head. Sometimes I write trailers. If I can't figure out where I am in the script, I write the trailer. Yeah. And which is to me exciting and the teaser not even the trailer <laughs> i imagine i'm there and i'm like what is it that is making me lean forward and then usually it's what's the new news of the thing that's why i'm excited in a theater because it's got bullet time right or like there's a thing and i'm like what now and i grab the person next to me if i can capture that thing in a written trailer then it'll re-excite me it'll give me a north star again and the storytelling to figure out why i'm even in the middle of this arc or whatever that thing is so it's just about watching the movie in your head that you're telling as a movie. And if there's one thing I'm okay at, it's writing movies. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's the, it's, it feels like a movie. You read, if you read one of my scripts, you say a lot of things about it, but you wouldn't ever finish it and say it's not a movie. And so just holding on to that part of it, watching a lot of films, nothing wrong with watching a lot of films. The best film school there is watching good films, you know? Mm -hmm. proper films and going back and watching Bedrock underneath it, watching Shane, watching Casablanca, watching those things. That's the foundational, you know, the disc other way smarter people than you discover things through thousands of hours of development to get to those movies. Right. So that's, that's a workshop right there. Go appreciate what they constructed scientifically appreciated, constructed structurally, like William Goldman says, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's what I say. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at 
brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.